The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. As many of you, my listeners, are aware, I have a tendency to rant about the state of apathy and the need for a shift in both public policy and opinion. When I attended the PAWS conference, Performing Animal Welfare Society, last November, I was energized to meet so many people in one room from a wide variety of backgrounds, perspectives, advocacy, and activism. Not just the speakers, but also the attendees were a very well-rounded group, from fellow conservationists to those who put not just their money, but also time and their effort into walking their talk. While running between panelists during breaks, one could not help but run into others doing the same thing, seeking to speak to one another to find time to connect further with not just panelists, but to fellow attendees. During these rather hectic and manic moments, I kept running into one particular woman, who, as she spoke to someone, I listened to what she had to say, and that turned out to be very interesting indeed. From passionate advocate to walking their talk, some people just stand above the crowd. They have a vibe that just makes you want to say hello. We need to talk. And that is how I met the multi-skilled, multi-talented Nanette Wheeler-Carter, founder of CA for Elephants. On the last evening, Nanette and I ended up delving into a multi-layered conversation on the steps outside the conference hall as the sun faded away and the conference wrapped up. Now, I finally caught up with this whirlwind of a woman to, con- to continue that conversation. Welcome, Nanette. Thank you, Ellie. It is such a pleasure to join you today. It's nice to catch up with you. You are one busy woman, as we've just been chatting before we started this conversation. And I said, let's start it and save it for the conversation. So I hope you're doing well today. I am. I am recovering from Earth Week last week, which was very uh, hectic, busy, and enlightening. As uh, all right. As all well, maybe Africa. we... Maybe we can get into that a little bit. We have a a lot to talk about, and I'm hoping we'll get into a variety of talking points today. So let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how all of this magnificence and magnitude of Nanette Wheeler-Carter comes together into CA4 Elephants. And then we'll get into what CA4 Elephants is. Ellie, you know, from a very early state in life, Uh, When I was a little girl, my parents had a black German shepherd, and at night, 
in those days, dogs did not come into the house. They slept out in the garage. And when my parents would come in to cover me up, I would be out in the garage curled up with the dog. So I think I've had this animal attraction from conception. I don't know where I get it, but I was always bringing home the stray dogs, the stray frogs, um, saving birds. I drive people crazy because um, I can see the hope in any creature. Uh, I went to school at the University of Oregon, which is a very natural environment, and I studied medicine for five years, and then I became a petrochemical engineer. Now, back in the late 70s, early 80s, I knew that oil was finite, but the rest of the world did not, and I started championing that we need to develop an alternative to fossil fuel for our energy source. Nobody listened. I went on into the computer industry and met my husband. And somehow we ended up in Florida where we started a dog rescue. And I thought that I had seen the worst of the worst of humanity in rescuing dogs. And then a friend of mine who has MS um, in 2005 wanted me to go to Africa with her. And due to circumstances, I was unable to go. But when we moved back to California in 2013, she wasn't doing very well. And I said, if we are going to go to Africa, we should go now while you still can stand and walk. And so I encouraged Marcy to go to Africa. She didn't want to spend the money. I said, we are going to Africa. And I had no desire to go to Africa, quite frankly, because to me, in my mind, Africa was this impoverished, um, what I thought was a country. I now know it's a continent with 48 states. So there, it was an education. I'm always striving for education. And it changed my life. Which, I mean, it, which, which country did you go to? Uh, we started in South Africa. We went up to uh, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Botswana. Well, right there must have been a life-changing experience as South Africa is like the Switzerland of Africa. Well, infrastructure and everything uh, and money to pay for it compared to, let's say, Zimbabwe. Well, you know, um, I actually, I fell in love with Zimbabwe. I support um, the uh, Victoria Falls Trust for Wildlife in Zimbabwe. And I was very disappointed to later learn about the president and the politics in Zimbabwe. But um, is that the uh, Victoria, uh, Victoria Falls Trust with? Um, um, oh goodness, goodness! What's their name? Uh, uh, he's he's a vet, and she's yes, yeah. We're they're yeah. one of our grantees, and they you know they they rescue baby elephants, and not the ones that. Uh, the president wants to sell to China, but the ones that are orphaned from poachers and... Roger Perry and Jessica Dawson. There sorry. you go. I'm Thank sorry. You. They okay. would be so... I, I had to come up with their names and find that memory chip because if they listen to this program, if I didn't get their names, they'd kill me. Well, we use uh, footprints from the elephants that they rescue as demonstration to schools and educations. But anyway, um, I was so impressed. I mean, Africa to me, by the third day... Um, the person that was our tour guide kept saying to me, Nanette, do you feel it? Do you feel it yet? And I kept looking at her like, what the heck? What am I going to feel? I'm in Africa. I'm tired. I traveled 22 hours to get here. Just leave me alone. By the third day, something was shifting in me. 
Well, see, for me, it was the moment I stepped off the plane and my foot hit the Zimbabwe soil. I knew it. I I, knew that's where my life was going to be. Not necessarily Zimbabwe, but Africa. Well, for, you know, our tour guide took us directly to Cape Town, which is beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. It's last year. It was named the most beautiful town in all of the world. Um, but to me, it was, it could have been Monterey, California. It could have been any town in the United States on the, on the ocean. Infrastructure, uh, money. Infrastru- yes, wealth. it was beautiful. And it wasn't until we got out of Cape Town going through closer to Johannesburg and, and seeing the variants and then landing in Zimbabwe, which landing in Zimbabwe took me, I, I felt like I was landing, uh, I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do remember the TV show MASH, uh-huh. but I, at the airport, I felt like I was landing at the MASH You set. felt like you were traveling back in time in a couple time. centuries ago. Yes, exactly. And But the people were so genuine and so sincere. And I don't know if that was just because we were American tourists tip us or that's genuinely how they are. Um, but I was able to get into some pretty in-depth conversations with some of the local residents. And well, you know, it is genuinely how they are um, because they don't have a lot of the extraneous uh, brouhaha that we deal with on a daily basis that keeps us or keeps us delving into that question. Are you happy? Um, that's not a question, Africans deal with on a daily basis they're dealing with survival so when you meet an african jumping off the plane in the middle of zimbabwe at that tiny little landing strip outside of victoria falls then yeah uh you immediately get to see genuineness you are meeting a person that has everything out there well it was just very impressive and then um zambia um again and Botswana. The Aswanga Delta was just incredible. So it, by the time we got back, um, I really didn't feel the effects initially. But more and more I started reading and I started buying books and I started educating myself. Like I read The Soul of the Lion and Modek. And, um, you know, then I started noticing on Facebook more and more uh, people, the awareness, the activism on Facebook, which is really funny because I started playing Farmville on Facebook six years ago and noticed um, Occupy. And I got very heavily into Occupy because I just didn't like seeing the bloody faces of all these young people. And now it's now it's all about wildlife. And it's amazing how many people I have dragged with me through the Farmville days into Occupy, into being aware of the plight of elephants and other endangered species. So, Well, this is what still amazes me today. Here in our privileged uh, Western culture, even Europe, Western culture, and I don't mean just the USA, but particularly in the USA in highly urban areas such as LA, Florida, Chicago, New York, how little we're still, we're aware of what's going on with elephants that you'll still find a headline in New York um, where U.S. Fish and Wildlife and uh, the governance is try- and legislation is trying to say stop selling ivory in New York. How little people know what it means. What do you, why do you think that is? And this will get into CA for elephants in a minute. But why do you think that is with all the headlines? And you first went to Africa in 2005, you said? 
Yes. So since 2005, that's a decade, and how aware you are of it and how much over in just this last decade and even the last five years, such dramatic changes have happened in the, in the tremendous loss of elephants, rhino, and myriad other species that are on the brink. Why do you think it is that we still don't know? Well, I, I really think that goes back to cultural conditioning in the Western culture. You know, a hundred or years or so ago, and I can't remember who wrote the book, And They Saw the Elephant, uh, or And We Saw the Elephant. I, I'm sitting here looking at my bookshelf, and I know I have it up there somewhere. But it talks about the first elephant coming into New England and how nobody had ever seen an elephant before, and it was just this amazing creature. And we still, on some level, have that mentality that creatures are for human entertainment, consumption, um, and we have to change that. And it's happening slowly. I call it the um, conscientious sperm penetrating one's mind and then germinating. Well, it's, it is happening, but we've been talking, we, and I'll say, I'll put myself in this category. I've been doing this for 40 years. So Rachel Carson, E.O. Wilson, you name it, um, Ed- Edward Abbey. We have been talking about this since before the 1960s. So how long does it take that sperm to generate a mind? Does it take a crisis like we're facing now? or And do you think that will speed up the activity um, before we lose the elephants, before we lose rhino? Do you think it will happen? I know we see a lot of chatter on Facebook and like minds attract like minds, but how do we attract the un- attract the unlike minds? Well, you have to we have to relate to them more. I think when we show graphic pictures it's a turnoff even though it's the truth. I don't think people want to see the truth because the truth is painful and nobody wants to feel that pain. Secondly, I I don't think people really connect the dots. They don't connect the dots between the politics in our country, the politics around the world, the world events like terrorism, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram. To bring their plastic bag to the grocery store? Yes, they don't. I mean, I will tell you, Ellie, before I became a vegan, when my children were little, I thought nothing of peeling the skin off of a chicken. Nothing. Throwing it in, the, it never even occurred to me that I was taking the carcass of an animal who lived a horrible life, was slaughtered in a horrible capacity for my consumption. Well, let's let's do make a little clarification point. You know, the 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 industrialization of our food processing did not really happen until maybe uh, 30, 40 years ago. So the chickens we were eating when we were kids right. um, were definitely raised more environmentally friendly. I'm not going to say, I'll, I'll say humanely, but not necessarily conscientiously. We just didn't have the processes we have now because we didn't have the population. But within the last 30 to 40 years, and especially within the last 25, that process has changed. So um, being vegan and recognizing that every animal has a, a a life and a soul, animal rights, animal welfare, it is having an effect on, and this is a lot of what we learned at the PAUSE conference, it is having effect on uh, large landscape species survival plans. How do you, and we're going to cut to a break here in a couple of minutes, but I just want to quickly address, 
we have to find a way, as you're talking about, to connect these dots to encompass that every single animal having a personality and as an individual may not help us uh, protect and save species as a whole. What do you think? Um, I think that people need to, they, they need to make the connection of the value of life over death. And I think that that creates an inconvenience that people don't want to deal with. Okay, so the value of our life over their death, or their death over our life. No, their life over their death. Okay. In other words, we have to connect everything. If you take the industrial meat industry, it's contributing to climate change. We are all going to feel that. So there is a form of life that we are breeding that is going to contribute to ultimate death somewhere in the world because of weather change. Well, it's going to contribute to our ultimate death if we don't have a planet to live on. Absolutely. And that's what we're not connecting the dots to. We have, we look at the, you and I look at a picture of the earth and we connect the dots. We connect how Africa is connected to the United States on a multi-faceted level. The average person does not connect why an elephant in Africa should concern them in the United States. They do not connect that those dots yet. So you're absolutely right. And that is the point of this program, Our Wild World, is to help people to connect the dots. So we're going to cut away to a break for a minute. And I'd like you to stick with us with my guest, Nanette Wheeler-Carter, who you can tell already is a very fascinating, multi-talented and multi-faceted woman. And we're going to get into CA for elephants and what it is. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more. 
Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. This is Our Wild World and my guest, Nanette Wheeler-Carter. And before we uh, went off to the break, we started getting into a lot of the background and leading up to connecting the dots, which is what this program is about. So Nanette and I were getting into a conversation here that can go a lot of directions. So we're going to try and uh, corral ourselves today to keep this conversation to connecting these dots. Nanette works in uh, an organization. She founded an organization called CA4 Elephants. And from what I understand, it has a couple of different meanings. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, CA for Elephants came as a result, as I mentioned earlier, of my trip, my first experience to Africa. And um, I came back and learned of the Global March. There's a Global March that happens on International Wildlife Day every October 4th. And this year will be the third March. Last year, I wanted to bring it to Sacramento. And because of another effort in a city relatively close by, um, there was a concern that we would deplete the resources. And so there was an all-in-out effort to snuff out a march in Sacramento. So I went to Washington, D.C. And um, nothing extreme about me. I'm, I, I don't do politics when it comes to saving lives. Uh, so I didn't play the politics in trying to hold a march. I, I went to D.C. and I met some fabulous people and opened up my eyes, worked with Raymond Lesniak, who was, is the state senator for New Jersey, who wrote the bill that made it to Chris Christie's desk to um, make New Jersey a no ivory, no rhino horn, no endangered species body parts to be imported or sold within the state of New Jersey, the first state to sign such a bill. And I was so enamored. And I thought, I have to bring this back to California. And working with uh, Jen Samuel from Elephants, D.C. and Raymond Lesniak, we got a bill written. Okay, let me 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 stop stop you here here for a second. second. Because there's something really important that 
just got glossed over here. You say you're not a political person, I get it, but yet you connected to um, the people in power, the people who um, are legislators. How does your average person, when you're talking to people where you are now in Sacramento, you said they didn't have the resources, so you just decided, okay, skip that, let's go straight to the source and go to D.C. How do you get people where you are to say, I can take that leap? Well, not everybody has the financial means to do that. Not everybody has the financial means to get on an we airplane. We can all write letters. Yes, we, we, we can. We all have a telephone. And I am really happy to say that the group that was trying to circumvent our march in Sacramento, uh, by the time we got our bill written and brought back, they had already worked with legislators here in California to present a bill. It was presented to our state assembly on January 7th. It went to committee meeting on March 10th, passed committee meeting, and is now sitting in appropriations. We do appropriations the May 1st. So legislation is one prong of CA for Elephants to kind of bring it back to how CA for Elephants got started. It got started as a result of this march and this driving force in me to make people aware of this passion that was growing, that little bug in my head was starting to germinate into morph into something. I wasn't quite sure yet. And um, as I got more uh, knowledgeable, um, I'm, I'm not a world, um, oh, I, I can't even think of the word right now, but I, I'm not all an expert on all avenues yet, but I am a consummate student. So I started reading, started talking, started learning, and came across that there are two ways to really stop poaching. One is to end the ivory market. If we can stop the demand, then people aren't going to poach. Right now, a, a, an ounce of ivory sells for three or four times an ounce of gold. So that's because the demand is higher than the supply. It's the old simple rule of business, supply and demand. So if we stop the demand, then we can stop the requirement for the supply. That requires education. So that's the legislation to shut down the laws that allow the importation and sales of ivory and rhino horn and tiger paw and bear bile and all these horrible um, body parts that make it into our system. Legislation is the only way to stop it. The United States is number two in being complicit to China. China is the number one hoarder of uh, endangered species body parts. And the United States is complicit in complying with the crime lords and the traffickers that go over to Africa and uh, pay a, a person out of a village. Well, the, the Afri to sum it up, Africans are expendable to cartels. Sure they are. So, and what they, they do is they go in and they offer them, you know, 10 to 12 years worth of income, which to us here in the United States sounds like millions of dollars. It becomes worth the risk. But people don't realize that in Africa, a whole village could live on maybe at most 500 to to $1,000 a year, and that could feed up to 150 people. Not steak, not like we eat here, but it takes, you know, their needs, as we've already expressed, is a lot less than ours are in the Western culture. 
I so, don't know if I'd say a lot less. They're very different. They're, very, they're different. very focused on today, which is part of the problem. There is no future thinking in Africa. And, uh, and, and that's part of the problem is take what I can get and get it now. And that's why poachers are so uh, dis- dispens- dispendable in well, Africa they- because th- they're, it's worth the risk to take what you can get now, even if you're going to die for it. Well, so, here's, here's how I feel about that. I think, um, I think that many countries like China, they have infected the 21st century into Africa. So there is that desire for televisions and cell phones. And so they do take the risk for connection. I mean, I, I probably have a good thousand friends on Facebook that live in the bush in Africa and communicate off of a cell phone. Where did they get that cell phone? They got it from China because China it's is... it's not just China. Let, we were talking about colonialism. So now we have neo-colonialism. Now we have post-neo-colonialism. Now we have conservation colonialism. China didn't start this. The Western no, they world did. started this. Yes, absolutely. I, I fully agree with you on that. Um, because the third complicit com- a pers- a country in the ivory trade is Great Britain. People don't realize that Great Britain has the third largest stockpile of ivory in the world. And, um, and nobody's noticed them stepping up to burn theirs yet, no, have they? No, but Prince William is doing a great job of leading the charge as to why poaching should be stopped. But and then I, he goes on a hunt. Yes. So, you know, there's, there's, there's so many elements to the poaching crisis. There's the politics. There's the Americans, you know, fueling what people don't really realize is that we're fueling the terrorism in the world because we have this wonderful lobbyist group in the United States called the NRA. Many people, when they ask me about AB 96, which is the bill in California, they say, well, I thought we, I thought we had a national law against this. Well, we have many individual state laws. We have a federal bill sitting in Congress that will never make it to a vote in Congress because the NRA has such deep pockets to all of our congressional members. So if we can close it down state by state, then eventually maybe the federal government will follow suit. Okay, reiterate one more time what, what it is, what this bill is. The bill in California, AB 96 is um, a bill to stop importation and sales of elephant ivory, rhino horn, tiger paw, any endangered animal body part. It could be... In California. uh, In California. Okay. And that's a huge step because we have a large Asian population And these body parts play back into thousands of years of traditions, which was okay thousands of years ago because elephants that roamed the earth, they did so by the millions. Well, China's middle class is growing, so you have more people that can now afford these status symbols. And unfortunately, the wildlife cannot reproduce fast enough to keep up with the demand. And this is some of what I talked about with Peter Knights of Wild Aid and who is doing a great job of PR in China to uh, bring awareness to the rising middle class who's seeking this cultural connection, so-called traditional connection that Ivory has uh, within their their culture, that um, 
you know, an elephant dies for this. So cultures change, traditions change. We can all change, but it doesn't seem to be happening. And one of the important things that Peter Knight's brought to attention was here in the U.S. we've had three, five hundred years to deal with our industrialization, our population explosion, and our wildlife crisis. We do not have a great history of dealing with wildlife until our national parks and all of that came along and dealing with our own ESA and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So now you have a place like China that's dealing with this in a matter of 10 to 20 years, decades versus uh, centuries. And now Africa, who's dealing with it in terms of decades. So how do we bring all this together? Well, it's going to come down to necessity because the elephants are not going to be around much longer if we don't stop the poaching and we don't shut down the market and we don't do a better job of alerting people. And and I will give you a perfect example. I have friends that have heirloomed pieces of ivory, hair hair clips or trinkets. trinkets. And they say to me, you know, I'm not going to crush this. I'm not going to burn this. And, you know, it was my great-great-grandmother's. Well, you know, I just sold my great-great-grandmother's sterling silver place setting that I never used. It was handed down to me. It came across the Atlantic um, in 1898, and I've never used it. It was sitting in the closet collecting dust. I made $800 because all it's worth is what they can melt it down for. It has no intrinsic value anymore. And that's where we have to get with ivory, where it isn't worth anything. And so other than the sentimental value, if you want to keep your family... It isn't worth anything financially, Financially. economically. Financially, yes, economically. This goes back to valuing the life over the dollar. Yes, and it also goes back to accountability. Um, Legislation requires people to be accountable. What we do right now is we send lots of subsidies to foreign countries like Africa. Last year, President Obama um, sent $7 billion into the African countries with no accountability where it goes. And yet the poverty level in some of these countries like Tanzania, where an average person lives off of a dollar a month, um, it didn't make it down. In fact, there's a huge scandal with the Tanzanian government and China bribing them to bring in the infrastructure and the road through the Serengeti. And I'm kind of bouncing all over the place here. Um, But there's just no accountability. There's no accountability in the market. There's no accountability in government. You bring up a really great point because there was a headline the other day in the news that Kiketwe, the um, soon-to-be ex-president of Tanzania, is going to dedicate some of his time to wildlife conservation. So big whoop. Um, you know, I love Tanzania. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in Tanzania. The Sulu is one of the last remaining places, and the elephants are being decimated there. Tanzania is the major trafficking route of supply of elephants. Um, Kenya is the, uh, the, the demand route 
out of the country. So it swept across from East Africa to now Southwest Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Botswana, uh, where rhino and elephant are now being poached en masse and being transported across these poaching routes out Kenya, out Tanzania, into Asia. So with your with the bill in California and with you know, statements like Kiketwe made and statements that Kenya is making, which has been far ahead on the the ivory ban, but it still has lost 80% of its wildlife, despite the hunting ban. We have all these lobbies bringing financial pressure to bear on our politicians and our federal agencies. How do we get these agencies to change their policy and instead of being backed by dollars, be backed by public opinion? Again, it goes back to getting the public aware. We have a disassociation with people, both in Africa and here in America and in China. Um, I'll give you an example. The, there's somebody said to me very recently, you know, Nanette, the person that killed the woolly mammoth didn't know he was sending a species into extinction. He was just hungry. Today we know. Today we know what we're doing. We didn't know a hundred years ago when the first elephant came to the United States that 115 years later they would be extinct. I think you uh, just hit the nail on the head. Today, we know. We know. We know what we're doing. We don't have any excuses. And, and people, we conservationists, um, people like you, you're doing a great job of helping to educate the average consumer um, and the average African. And the average African that, you know, and it's hard for them because they are, are no different than any other human being. We all want instant gratification. If I go and kill that elephant now, I will be able to feed my family and my community for the next two years. So how do we sway African opinion under the governments that they're dealing with? Okay, we here in the U.S., we know we're doing what we can by blocking off the arms of the demand. But how do we, as ex-colonials, um, expats, uh, white people, wealthy, who have access to everything we've just been talking about, how do we convince an African who has nothing that this is their future? Well, I can tell you from my interactions with... Um say we're building, we're helping to build a conservation, um, conservation Maasai village. In fact, it, it has its, its local grand opening on the 30th of April. We've spent the last year and a half, uh, providing them funding to build their huts and put in the conservation that they need to create this tourist attraction for people to actually go and live the Maasai life and to experience African culture, um, conservation. I don't really think that it is the... Africans have a value for their wildlife, but they don't feel like they have any alternatives because their governments, any country you go to, the people will tell you the government is corrupt. Okay, Whatever. you know, I need to break you up here. We're going to okay. pick this up. We need to cut to a break. Otherwise, they're going to cut us off. So stick with us. This is a fascinating conversation. We'll be right back.
Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're in the middle of an interesting conversation. I'm sorry I had to interrupt Nanette, but go for it, Nanette. You are on a roll, and this is what we have to do. You were talking about the Maasai uh, village and school. Yes, well, we actually have, to go back to CA for Elephants, it started out promoting legislation, and it has grown into providing educational opportunities here in the United States. We speak at schools, we speak at community events, but it also works in, uh, we work in Africa in educating Africans about the value of keeping the wildlife alive versus killing it to which the majority of Africans that live in the bush, indigenous people that live in small communities, they have a value for, for some wildlife. They don't necessarily have a value for the predators, and, but Dr. Laura Marker with the Cheetah Foundation is, is working hard on that end. They have a different relationship of what value means. Yes. To them, the value is not necessarily an economic one with a dollar bill with a face on it. It has a value that is, you know, existed for centuries, but that value system is changing because of us. So how do we switch it back? What is CA for Elephants doing in terms of the Maasai Village? And I believe you're also working in Sierra Leone. Um, how are you gearing this message and taking the message of us here in the U.S. who have the privilege and the ability and the luxury to talk about these things to people who are really trying to get by every day? Well, in Sierra Leone, um, Sierra Leone and and that part, the western uh, coast of Africa, has been under civil war for, gosh, probably my my lifetime. And they have come out of it, and so they have no infrastructure, and consequently they have health issues. And last year we had this big Ebola scare, and there are many organizations that are trying to go in to help. And in our case, we have been approached in, uh, by a gentleman in Freetown who is a photographer who has taken under his wing over 100, probably close to 200 orphans now, who lost both parents to Ebola and he desperately needs a school and an orphanage and a place for these children to grow up and become educated. And education is really a critical key, even in Africa. You know, we struggle here in the United States about should we have a free education? Should we have this? Should we have that? And, and you know, in Africa, they don't have those opportunities for education. They don't have community libraries. They don't have access 
to Barnes and Noble where they can go and buy books and read. Or they computers are, or teachers. Or computers There's simply or te- no access, period. There's simply no access to education. So that is is one of the critical components that we're trying to build in CA for Elephants is that there are a lot of Americans that are, say, 50-ish and up that have been forced out of um, their corporate lives. They have a nest egg. Their kids are grown. They have energy because we're living longer. And what am I going to do to make an impact in this world? And we are actually starting a program. Um, we have a woman who was actually at pause who is working with us to start a, a, a program to bring over older educated people to come help in communities for a span of time to bring in education. And they don't have the legis- they don't have the um, red tape that we have here in the United States. So what you're doing is bringing community to, co- to community together. You're reinstilling the value of eldership. Yes, that's part of it. But we're also helping with the human conditions that contribute to poaching by giving communities an alternative source. We're taking this brain thrust, if you will, of all of these educated, expertise, uh, highly sophisticated individuals, and we're going into communities and we're doing skills assessment, we're doing needs assessment, and we're doing resource analysis, and we're helping them to build um, businesses. And then we're coming back, and thanks to President Obama for having the first African Leaders Summit last year, um, there are 140 American corporations that have been given tax dollars to the tune of $20 billion to invest in Africa. And part of what we're hoping to do is to present these opportunities to these corporations to get them to funnel this money into smaller communities to build up the economic foundation of these communities so they don't have to poach. So hopefully this is not a $20 billion subsidy to something like Shell Corporation to go in and start no. tearing down forests and planting palm oil. No, 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 no. We that's see that goes back to accountability. Part of our part of our mission is to make sure that there is accountability, that there is somebody watching where this goes. Now Africa is a big continent. We cannot be all places at at all times. So we are focused on partnering with organizations to build the school in Sierra Leone only because there's such a desperate need there. And then we're working with the Maasai Village that launches their conservation village at the end of this month. That is kind of a blueprint for us because in many cases the Maasai culture is being I exploited. Hope Exploited. Thank you. I was going to say bastardized, but exploited is much better. <laughs> but they're, uh, you know, they're participants in that. Well, they're being run off their land because many governments, like in Tanzania, they're saying that the Maasai in Tanzania don't own the land, that they're squatters on government land, and yet the Maasai have been there for thousands of years. And because China wants this land to build their major highway through the Serengeti, proclaiming that it's going to open up all these markets for communities to deliver their goods when in fact it's not going to achieve that because of the hills that they would have to go over 
Well, all, actually, it, it comes down to expectations and promises. It's yes, the same old, and same old. All this, all this road is going to do, it leads to the mines where China needs the ingredient to build their cell phones. Well, China's building roads and infrastructures because it is a highway to extract resources to yes. Mombasa, to the coast. So and what's going to happen? This is a given. It's an interstate system to move resources. There was a great cartoon in a Kenyan paper, and that cartoonist has since been asked to leave the um, the, the Guardian in Kenya, and it was... Uh, President Kabaki and the Chinese ambassador going on safari, and the caption underneath was saying, taking inventory. Mm. Yeah, well, unfortunately, this highway goes directly through the major migration path. From what I understand, that that path of the, the Serengeti Highway has been, so far, successfully negated. There's still a fight over it. There's still a lot of scheming going on underneath uh, and, and in back rooms where people don't have the people don't have access to the decisions that are being made. There is an alternative route. The alternative route would take longer. It would not interfere with the migration routes. It would not interfere with the tourist experience. And it uh, would make it more difficult for some of these businesses on the other side of the Serengeti um, to get their goods to market. But as you're saying, we have to balance resources. Africa's future is their wildlife and their resources against the needs and the wants and the desires and the money of the Western wealthy nations. Yes, and that is part of what CA for Elephants is trying to accomplish legislation, education, and sustainability with accountability that Africa being the last uh, natural raw continent, if you will, that hasn't totally been westernized, it hasn't totally been abused and raped of its resources. Um, That's what I say. In Africa, there is still the possibility. Yes. So um, it's at a crossroads. And I've said this for 20 years, and it is never more true than it is today, that Africa is on the crux and the tipping point of a crossroads. Well, it is often said that Africa is uh, where humanity and, and the life force of the earth started. And it, is, it may well be also where humanity and life takes its last breath if humans don't wake up and stop the greed and go back to um, living a life that is Is sustainable, accountable, and we make our legislators act accordingly. Our legislators need accountability. I have written actually an amendment for the U.S. Constitution called uh, No Confidence in Congress, um, and that is sitting out there. Um, I'm running for Senate. I would like to fill Barbara Boxer's seat. So there are multiple facets that we can get into to affect change. We don't have to have the same individuals that are profiteering from the crises that face the world. We can bring in people that are willing to put themselves out there, that are willing to step up and make a difference. And I think that there are some, but people have to be willing to get those people in position to where they can make the decisions that need to be made. So in other words, not only thinking outside the box, we need a new box. Yes, <laughs> we do. And which well, is I'm great. glad to hear you're going to be part of that. So well, um, we've got a few minutes left here. How can people help CA for Elephants? 
You are a 501c3, correct? We are a 501c3. How do we find you? You can go to ca number four elephants plural dot org, and you can make a donation um, on our website. Uh, you can send us a check. Our address is there under our donation page, and you can get involved in some of our activities. Um, if you're interested in helping us, we'll march this year in Sacramento. Um, I was on the phone with National Geographic this morning. I'm hoping to make it a celebration of life in California. Um, you can get involved with some of our activities in Africa. If you would like to join us, we have a team going over the middle of October. We will be there until towards the end, uh, hopefully be back before in time for Christmas with our families. But uh, we'll be over there traveling excuse me, through South Africa in villages, doing our needs analysis and um, up into Kenya. And we are speaking with other Maasai villages to help them develop conservation efforts in their communities. And then coming back, starting off 2016 by attacking the corporations that are going to be given this $20 billion. Instead of attacking, <laughs> let's let's talk about... Um, Engaging, you know, uh, we talk about war a lot, and uh, what I try to do is get the, the violence out of this. What we need to do is start engaging and re-engaging and reorienting, <coughs> and being inclusive as opposed to exclusive. So you're offering an opportunity for a wide variety of skilled and unskilled people to take part in CA for Elephants, not only in terms of California <coughs> and changing legislation. Do you need to get a drink of water there? And, um, I did, I did, I swallowed okay, it, so sorry. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so for this trip that you're you're talking about, are you looking for skilled volunteers of people, teachers, um, biologists, zoologists, people who can pass on natural history and bi- biogeography kind of information? And are you also looking for elderly folks, 50 and or 40, 50 and higher, who have something to impart in terms of life skills? All of the above. All right. All of the above. We have um, on our board, we have a a major conservationist who will lead the conservation team. I'm looking for people that, I'm even looking for people that would like to join the board and help grow the organization to better meet the geographic demands of Africa so that we can be in more places and help where the help is needed and wanted. Um, you know, you mentioned that Africa is not a safe place today for Caucasian people. Depends they on who you are, are. <laughs> yes, and what you're bringing to the table. Um, you know, for the most part, in my discussions with many Africans, while they're very welcoming, they're also very leery. I will be very upfront about that. So we go in with the graciousness of building teams. We speak with leaders and we present them the information so that they can then present it to their community. We don't overstep our boundaries to where, you know, we're in. What you're doing is the difference of being invited versus bringing an agenda. 
So, yes. and it's the same thing Wild Eyes does. You know, we, in terms of a needs assessment, it's what do you need, not what can I give you, but what, you know, what can I bring? It's not what can I bring you. Here's what I want to do for you, but what do you need, and how can we help? Which is really the only way conservation and change is going to move forward in Africa. Well, one of the things, and I, I'm sure you'll agree with me, is that Africans are not lazy people. They have a tremendous hunger and desire to learn and grow and be self-sufficient. And that actually was one of the things I was very impressed with with South Africa was that after apartheid and all of the sanctions that had been imposed on South Africa, they learned to be self-sufficient. And the quality of their food and their textiles is pretty impressive. I was hard-pressed in any of the stores that I went to to find many things made in China. So, you know, there, there is very so it definitely... it takes a will. It takes a strength of will of not only the people to speak up and um, vote their ideals, not just their um, tribal affi- affiliations and affinities, but it takes a, a people willing to stand up and um, provide and be there for an infrastructure. Well, there's an old colloquialism called empowerment. And what they really want is to be empowered. They Just like us here in America, we don't feel our government listens to us. They don't feel like their governments, in many cases, care about them. And so they want to be empowered. And it's the primal drive is to be able to provide for our families, our loved ones, our communities, and provide them the sustainability of a brighter future. They are no different in that regards than we are here in America, just a little bit different in how they live and what their expectations are. But and how their, their primal... government treats them and where the money goes. Yes. It's a well, big deal. our money goes, it, it is a huge deal. And I mean, our money doesn't help... necessarily go where it's supposed to go either, but in Africa, it is a huge problem. We didn't even well, get into covering corruption. Yeah, and you know, I have people all the time that ask me, why am I spending my energy in Africa now versus America? Because America does have safety nets. We do have a lot of social programs to help people in need. Africa doesn't have that. By and large, these people are on their own, and their survival is on their own. Absolutely. So that was uh, an an invigorating, highly educative uh, conversation with you today, Nanette. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I could talk with you for a long time. So maybe after you're in the Senate, we'll have another conversation. But do keep me posted on what's going on. Um, I would love to hear more about your upcoming trip and what's going on in Sierra Leone and the Maasai Mara. So stay in touch. You can find CA4 Elephants on Facebook and I believe Twitter and their website at ca4elephants.org. And uh, get in touch with Nanette Wheeler-Carter. So thank you, Nanette. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Ellie, for this opportunity. It's been terrific. I greatly appreciate it. You're welcome, and we'll be in touch. And that's it for today. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 